You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. It's time for straight talk about diversity, frank questions, honest answers, and real insights. It's Diversity Straight Up with your hosts, Sadika Bodka of Nikea Diversity Consulting and Anthony Arrington of top-ranked professional and executive search firm. Diversity Straight Up is a Corridor Business Journal podcast brought to you by the City of Cedar Rapids, Collins Aerospace, and Alliant Energy. On today's episode, Amy Frederick, president of U.S. Insurance Solutions at Principal Financial Group. A lot of companies have, in the past, thought if they check the box Mm -hmm. of, we have a leader, we have resource groups, we're done. Definitely some companies have gotten lost in the governance and the structure, Mm -hmm. and they forgot the reason they did it was to get a different conversation started and to have a different set of priorities and to eventually invest in things differently. We'll be right back. At Collins Aerospace, we believe that fostering an inclusive environment makes our employees feel valued. It also helps our business succeed. By encouraging diverse viewpoints in the workplace, we're redefining futures. It's why we proudly support the Corridor Business Journal's diversity podcast, Diversity Straight Up. Diversity Straight Up is sponsored by the city of Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids is a welcoming and vibrant city, encompassing unique attractions, exciting and diverse events, specialty shopping, a dynamic art scene, and a large variety of restaurant and nightlife options. You'll find that Cedar Rapids offers one of the best places to live, work, and play in the Midwest. Welcome to another episode of Diversity Straight Up. We're your co-host, Sadiqa Bakta. And Anthony Arrington. Today's guest is Amy Frederick. She's the president of U.S. Insurance Solutions at Principal Financial Group. But first, like we always do, we're going to have a quick conversation around a timely diversity topic. Something on my mind. So with the recent... uh, Super Bowl, the mother of all games. I'm a big, big uh, commercial junkie. I love Mm. to see what the commercials are doing. And it seemed as if this year there was a lot of like social issues, something to make people feel good. It inspired them. I loved Oil of Olay talking about gender equality. So it makes me think about companies and brands and what stand they have around some of these social issues. So I really liked Oil of Olay. I'm an avid user. And um, I will continue to support them because of their amazing cause. Interesting. So, Anthony, any for you that stands out in terms of products, companies that yeah. you support? or I think you're going to be surprised at my answer. So um, as we talk about businesses and support and commercials and, and uh, what you support and what you don't support, I'm actually not a supporter of the NFL. What? Um, you're a football fan. I know. My brother played, and I've been to a Super Bowl. My brother won a Super Bowl. I have a cousin with a Super Bowl ring, and so I've... I have wow. athletes in my family, but uh, about three years ago, I made the decision uh, to not support the NFL um, because of their stance on Colin Kaepernick, and um, I've, st- I've stuck with that. Um, thought it was going to be difficult for me, but I have my college football fix. So, but uh, in a nutshell, you know, I, I have an opinion about how they handle that and, and uh, where they stand on that issue, and I, I've chosen to uh, to to not support that. Well, that's a, that's a strong stand and support that you're taking for some of our listeners who are not aware of that particular yeah. 
situation. Want to elaborate a little bit more? Yeah. In, in a nutshell, you know, a few years ago, Colin Kaepernick took a knee um, in the NFL as a, as a protest, a uh, uh, peaceful protest against police brutality uh, amongst African-Americans in the, in the United States. Um, and he took a lot of flack for it. Um, and he's uh, essentially been blackballed from the league. If that, That's Anthony Arrington's opinion. Um, they've decided since he took a stand against an, an entity that uh, he's now in a position where he can't get a job in the league um, because of the public perception um, and everything that comes behind that. And uh, I just don't agree with it. And so I decided uh, myself to take a stand, and I've taken that stand for three years, and I'll continue to do that. So. And that's powerful. Yeah. So we could talk about that all day if you want. We can, but we have an amazing guest <laughs> here today. So we're getting ready to get out of the hood today with Amy Frederick. She is the president of U.S. Insurance Solutions at Principal Financial Group. So uh, strap on your seatbelt. Uh, enjoy the conversation. We're, we're about to get real. We're about to get straight up. What's on our guest's mind? Well, we're very excited to have you here today, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, just for our listeners to know what a dynamic individual that you're going to be listening to today, Amy joined Principal in 2000 in a performance improvement role for corporate strategic development. As a director in that division, she helped define a long-term strategy for the specialty benefits division. In 2004, she moved into that area. Since then, she's held many leadership roles, including second vice president in 2006 and vice president of group benefits. She assumed her current position in 2017. Prior to joining the company, she was a change management manager with Accenture, and the list goes on and on and on, and she serves on many community organizations in addition to all of that that she does to drive impact in her community. So, Amy, welcome again. Thanks so much. I appreciate being here. That that intro sounds really <laughs> awesome. Like, I sound very important with that intro. You're super important. <laughs> So tell us what's going on uh, around diversity and equity, inclusion, and engagement at Principal. Love sure. to hear some of sure. the things that are happening at, in your shop. Um, I am just this year at the beginning of 2020 moving into being the executive sponsor of the Executive Inclusion Council at Principal. And so um, when I think about the things that are going on, what I would say first is we have an amazing history of doing amazing things at Principal. So there's a lot of people who look at Principal kind of Midwestern, Iowa-based, and they don't realize the global footprint they have. They don't realize um, some of the things we've very quietly done in the industry, um, often in terms of uh, gender equality and some of the um, positions that we continually take to make sure that our uh, products and services and what we do really represents the people who need help, uh, mm -hmm. the people who need insurance or retirement planning or um, investment planning. Uh, and so, so when I look at what principal's doing, what we're doing is just simply kind of gearing up as an extension of what we've always done. So one of right. those most obvious things we've been doing is we have a uh, new person who has joined as the, uh, I think we're still messing with the title a little, little bit. I'm going to call it like chief inclusion officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Miriam Lewis has joined mm -hmm. us and uh, she has been an awesome addition to the team already. So I've already enjoyed working with her. Oh, well, uh, I have two quick questions here. One is what made a principal financial group want to hire a chief inclusion or a chief diversity officer? Yeah, um, I, I think we have always known that what we wanted to do um, was something that would align who we are internally and how we treat ourselves, our own employees, with 
with the customers that we have and who needs help. And so I think historically, we've done that a little bit more um, with existing people, existing talent, existing programs. And, and I would argue historically, we've made that a little bit more of HR's responsibility and journey. Um, and even though Miriam's reporting relationship comes up through HR, what we really wanted to do was hire an executive level talent who had the ability to do all the things we needed to do to be compliant and all the things we needed to do to make sure we've legally legally done everything appropriately in all the many nations we do right. business in. But, but more importantly, to be kind of that um, collection point of diverse voices and ideas. And we knew that we, ha- we run a risk of being very Des Moines-centric. And what Miriam really represents for us is the ability to try to get that global perspective for us into, into all of our products and services. So that was really the intention behind it. So who advocated for this position? Meaning who came up with that idea or thought that we needed to have this? We um, hired a new uh, chief human resources officer a couple of years ago. And um, it was really the intersection of him kind of coming into the organization and the executive management group having some pretty key personnel changes and kind of move, new voices moving in. So I would say the great thing is no one really had to advocate for this. Okay. I think we reached it as, you know, we've got... 16,000 employees globally. We've got a footprint that's going to put us in, you know, 25 nations and states. And we, we want to make sure that those 25 nations that we're in, we do the right thing to understand how those voices need to come to the mix. So it, it was time. Mm-hmm. And I think it didn't need a whole bunch of advocacy. It just was the time to do this. So let's, let's, let's change gears a little bit. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about, about you. Oh, great. So um, did a little research, and I know you went to school at, at Buena Vista. I did. University. Yeah. Great experience, I imagine. It was. Um, for being brutally honest, we're all from Iowa, and we understand the challenges in, in northwest Iowa um, around race relations in the political environment and everything else. And uh, fortunately, uh, Sarah and I have actually uh, done a little consulting up in that, in that area. We've actually done some work up there. Um, enjoyed enjoyed our time there and really enjoyed the people and learning Good. about uh, Storm Lake Market. It was a... Uh, actually pretty amazing experience would you agree yes but I'm curious knowing what we know about the history of that area um, talk about your experience as a student there um, sure maybe what you experienced personally around race relations and that maybe how it affected the way you think and right so so I, I think in fairness I'll go back even one step further which is um, you know it's kind of a joke when I leave Iowa they're like oh are you from a farm because <laughs> it's like no one really grows up on a farm I actually grew up on a farm. Okay. So when they say, oh, are you from a farm? Yeah, I'm actually from a farm. Yeah. So grew up on a farm, um, had really kind of uh, that childhood that you think of, you know, ran around in hay mows and mm-hmm. helped, had to, you know, walk beans and do all those things, sort of that. Yeah. Definitely that work ethic piece of it was absolutely there. But what it meant is I was relatively sheltered. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my high school graduating class had 33 people in it. And that was a large graduating class for that time. So that meant I did everything in high school. I was incredibly active, but I was still pretty sheltered. So going to Buena Vista, where I joined, you know, 400 people in a class was amazing. Like the big city. It was (laughs) absolutely. So, so that was, that was an amazing experience. Number one, just to be with so many people who were sort of like-minded about, we want to get some higher education, we're curious right. about the world. Um, and I would say at that time, 
I probably didn't, um, I just didn't understand how much I didn't know of the world. So Mm -hmm. that was the first time I probably met people who um, had a different, um, they had a different life story. Mm -hmm. They had a life story that was, I, I didn't grow up affluent at all. Right. But I, I didn't know that. Right. Um, but I grew up um, in a community of very uh, close-knit people, had a church community, had a school community. And so what I started to see at BV for the first time was really an understanding that there were people who came from urban areas mm-hmm. who had very different experiences. I thought that that um, sort of nuclear family, the way I defined it, was how everybody defined it. Mm-hmm. This was my first experiences that that's not how you defined it. Right. Um, it was probably some of my first experiences understanding um, some of the things that come with a little bit more income uh, inequality. Mm-hmm. I didn't really understand those pieces. And I had someone, um, I, my, one of the degrees I ended up getting from Buena Vista was philosophy and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a philosophy instructor at the time who was absolutely critically important to me in terms of saying, why do you believe that? What life experiences have you had that led you to say that? How do you think this person over here has had a different set of life experiences? So BV was my first time that I had to like kind of argue for what I believed in. Right. And it was amazing. Awesome. Were there any scenarios or, or situations or experiences that, that you can look back today and say, you know, I am so glad that X happened to me at Buena Vista or, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm so happy I experienced this because now I understand and it shapes the way I think as a leader. Yeah. Um, and maybe not. I'm, no, I, I am. Uh, so I had, I was uh, the editor of our school paper, our school newspaper, the TAC. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always enjoyed writing. I always enjoyed um, more the kind of really leaning into the liberal arts part of my education. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were doing a faculty search at the time, and I ended up writing an article about what I perceived to be biases going on in the faculty search. Mm-hmm. Um, it got picked up in the local newspaper. And so, uh-huh. um, and, and Storm Lake, times uh, that they have actually become relatively regionally kind of important some of the voices going on in journalism in storm lake yeah and so it got picked up in some of the local publications and i was um called into the academic dean's office and basically asked to make sure i did my research better or differently next time um what I understood at the time and what he was actually asking me was maybe don't write articles like this. Um, I think he ended up trying to have a conversation with me about uh, you don't, you know, you haven't done all the research. You haven't thought through every angle of this. Mm-hmm. And the conversation I ended up having to defend was um, I had a belief. I had a set of facts that, that went into that belief. I researched them. I sourced them. And I stand by my story. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of a defining moment for me in terms of I knew I was displeasing someone in an authority. Uh, and, and, and that was very uncomfortable You're rocking for me. the boat. I was very uncomfortable. You're questioning the, the status quo. 
and I, I meant to write a factual article mm-hmm. of something that I believed I thought Buena Vista could do better. Mm-hmm. That, that, that was what I believed I was doing. I didn't believe I was rocking the boat. I didn't understand that's what I was doing at right. the time. So it gave me kind of a lesson in um, even some of the times you thought you're understanding the whole context that you're operating in, you don't probably have as big of a picture as, as you need to have. Now, would I do something differently? Not necessarily. Right. But did I understand the world a little bit differently after that interaction? Yes. I absolutely do. The lesson learned. And yeah. that's helpful. Absolutely. So then how do you execute that in practice here as a leader? Um, I think one of the things I continually find is that, um, and, and the way I kind of say it is that dogmatism in any form is not helpful. And so when you are at you know, the very end of any continuum on an issue, I think the potential to not do your best thinking is pretty high. And so those events like that help me understand there's a broad view of the world. You need to think through that broad view. And then you need to operate from a position where you're trying to do your best to understand what biases people might be perceiving and what you're saying or doing and writing. And then make sure you're trying to get them to the point where we can make great decisions together. And I think, I definitely feel strongly that we don't make our best decisions when we come from a place of fear Hmm. or anger. And I think when we look at issues certain ways, you end up on an end of the spectrum that you're fearful or you're angry. So my job as a leader is to get people at a point where we're making decisions that have less fear and less anger in them. More facts more context, even more emotion sometimes, more heart sometimes, but doing it in a way that doesn't get you to sort of the polarized Polarized. positions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm glad you did indicate emotions because at the end of the day, as humans, as humanity, it's hard to be able to not have that as part of the crucial courageous conversations that you want it has individuals to be i to want have. it to be right. yes and if you want to be able to vet out diverse perspectives emotions come into play and how do you navigate that and how do you create a culture of questioning right right and i i don't think there's a perfect answer to this by the way i think everyone is going through their own journey to figure this out Agreed. what yeah. what what i can say is that the best conversations i've had have come from a starting point where people believe that our intent is actually good. And so that's another thing I frequently say, and I know it's not popular in every single circle, but I'm going to head into most conversations assuming there's a lot of good intent there. I'm going to assume most people came to work to do a great bit of work that day. I'm going to assume most people woke up and said, I'm more biased to help people than I am to get in people's way. That I am just going to assume that I am not here to be a jerk. I'm going to assume people are there because they feel strongly about something. And I think that mindset of assuming that, it helps me get through what are really potentially awkward conversations. Has there ever been a time that that has really challenged you in a conversation with someone? Yes, of course. So what do you do in that situation? Sometimes I handle it poorly. Sometimes I um, don't listen as well as I should. Sometimes I 
assume something about how they're approaching it or what they're saying that I shouldn't be doing. And so what I would say is every time I learn something about it, and sometimes I handle it well. <laughs> so sometimes I see us have a conversation that wouldn't have been possible a couple years ago. And, and those are the times I probably go home and love my job. So I think culture is like a thousand interactions. Yeah. And so it's not those big moments like, here's our culture and here's what we're going to do. It's, right. those, it's those thousand interactions. The days I go home the happiest are when I can go through those sort of micro interactions and I felt the goodness in them. Those are the days I go home the happiest. Those are what I call the, the water cooler conversations. Yeah. If, I, if, I, if I've had enough water cooler conversations to gauge the, the, uh, the temperature of my company, uh, that's probably a good indication that things are going well. Usually right. what happens in the lunchroom and at the water cooler is an indication of what's really going on in, in, in the company. So I'm curious, um, as, as you think about your experiences both outside and inside of work, um, I know we were interviewing a, uh, a guest a few weeks ago and I was having a conversation about someone who, for most of their life, they felt a certain way about uh, an underserved population. And it's completely changed over the last few years because of something in their life that they've learned, um, that they've experienced. And I'm wondering, and, and they've been able to learn from that and that affects them as a leader and it affects their decision making. And I'm wondering, are there any situations in, in your professional or personal life that you've come across um, that you've changed? Maybe you had a, a view 20 years ago or something and, and it's changed and it's changed the way you think. Are, are there any examples in your personal professional career that, uh, that you can think of? I can think of a, a couple. One of them has to do with um, a, a bias. I, I've always been... Um, and we're all dealing with biases. By yeah, the way. We, we, right, I, we right. deal with them every right. day. So, so I, I, I've always come from a position where I had generally a fair bit of, I would call it sort of financial security. Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel um, you know, financially insecure at many points in my life. Now, there were points at which, you know, it, it was close in grad school. <laughs> sure. You know, I had a stipend and yeah. I had literally $12 left that month to make it work. Um, but I always knew if something really would happen, I knew my parents could help me. I mm -hmm. knew I had grandparents. I had brothers. So, so I knew there was sort of that security. And so when we look at um, the way we communicate about like insurance products or savings products. I think one of the biases we have that we don't necessarily understand is we tend to use a voice aimed at people who have had general financial security. So we talk about the extra things that people do sometimes, you know, the coffee or the um, streaming media memberships right. or things like that. And and I think there's there's a whole group of folks who need a bunch of great advice and guidance financially about things like basic financial literacy that um, if we don't acknowledge the basics of where they're at in how we design products, how we underwrite risk, how we do any sort of communication in terms of getting them signed up for those products, we're going to miss an entire market of people who need help who really need help. So yeah. I'd say one of the things I've learned in the last 10 years, probably more than any other point in my career, is that we've got to take ourselves out of the equation and actually do 
the research, actually do the listening that allows us to understand who needs help, not who we presume will use our products, but who actually needs help. And I, I would say we're getting yeah. we're getting better at that. That's great to hear. I don't that. think we're great at that. But you're intentional about it, and so that's, that's we're getting good. more intentional that's about good. that. Yeah, and that that that's a bias that I feel like we've just got to continue to work to get rid of. Alliant Energy is a place where I can create the future, where my skills, creativity, and new ideas make a better tomorrow. I help deliver the energy powering moments that matter to you. It's where we care about the environment and our neighbors, a place where my talents and skills grow. My job isn't a job, it's my passion, my place, my purpose, because I am energy. See how you can put your energy to work at alliantenergy.com careers. So I want to go back to the position that you created here for the company. Again, you're still trying to figure out what the title of the chief. I'm sure, by the way, there is an official title. <laughs> I probably just don't know it, honestly. Well, how about for the sake of this conversation? We'll, we'll say chief, chief inclusion officer. Okay, Let's go with chief, that. We'll go with the chief yeah. inclusion right. officer. Excellent. Perfect. So I know you had indicated that um, from a reporting structure is part of the HR and then it goes up. Any reason why this position was not at the executive table? Um, I, think that, I think that the thought would be that we will craft it to have a role at that executive table. And so um, I think right now what we're thinking is we've got stuff to learn about how those voices get best heard, how we bring someone in from who's historically been outside the organization, and how we make sure they've got that voice um, at the table. I think it's really a function of um, just us taking some time to understand how that voice helps, how we need it, when we need it, where we need it, and how it best finds its way to our policies, our practices, our product designs. So I think we're taking it right now as just let's learn a little bit and then let's figure out where it slots in the best. Okay, well, I'm glad yeah. to hear that because I know in discussions with others in a similar positions, and I'm sure, Anthony, you've had conversations yeah. as well, whether it's in the for-profit, non-profit, um, academia, you name it, that positions such as this has been created. And um, at times it becomes a revolving door, at least in some of the institutions that yeah. we've seen. And yeah. we have conversations with them and they realize that they're there to be able to impact change. But then they feel as if their hands are tied because saying one thing, but in actuality, the actions are not reflecting that. Right. We see, and that's it's one of these. We, we had the conversation about the tokenism as a, as a word and, and do companies assign these individuals to check the box and say, yeah, I got a, I got a minority chief diversity officer, done deal, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we often see companies that are most successful have that person at the C-suite table, and you can see from a budget where the money's going and, and how they're investing, and so that's why we were asking. We, we tend to see that, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you all are exploring and, and, and looking at that that position being becoming an executive role, I think that's important and that's good to hear. Yeah, let me give you a couple of other thoughts on that too, is that um, I think what you, what you invest in and what you fund says something about how you're prioritizing. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So about half of the funding, you know, beyond the funding for the role, but about yeah, half yeah. of the funding for 
studies, program work, training, other things are going to come from the business units, not from HR's budget. So what you've got are business units saying, not only do I think this is important, I'm going to actually give you money to make this happen. We're doing so, standing ovation for you. Yeah. It's showing but, but enterprise wide, which you, is you got crucial. It. And so where the money comes from matters in roles like these. Mm-hmm. And so what I would say is that piece, I'm very comfortable that we're looking at it the right way. Good. Yeah. That's and I'm and I and I feel by the way a sense of accountability to make sure we continue looking at that the right way. So, uh, you mentioned that you recently became the executive sponsor for the Executive Inclusion Council. Correct. Share with us a little bit about the Inclusion Council. Sure. I'm very intrigued. The Inclusion Council for us is um, spans uh, it's across the organization. So, we've got, you know, all the business units represented, certainly kind of corporate um, or what we call is, you know, SCBU, so those shared corporate functions are represented as well. But we've also got a span of um, representation that is different types of jobs, different levels of jobs. So I would see my job on that executive inclusion council is making sure those voices are heard. So there's going to be some people who are um, in that role who have more of a, think of them more as a assistant manager or manager level person. And there's going to be people on there who are, you know, senior vice presidents. And so it's a mix of um, backgrounds, a mix of levels, a mix of uh, genders, (laughs) a mix of um, expertise. And we're pulling that together to say, how do we actually drive business outcomes differently than we have been? How do we invest differently? And how do we make sure we're hearing voices that we haven't heard as much before. One of the things that's particularly important to us this year is making sure that the decisions we make don't feel overly Des Moines centric Mm -hmm. so that they speak to the populations that we have in uh, Latin America, Mm -hmm. or they speak to the populations that we have in Asia. So we want to make sure that we are doing things that truly are representative of principle as a whole not principal as a, a Midwest. That's really good to hear because I know that's one of our, our, our kind of our things that we, we talk about a lot is the companies have to think beyond the state of Iowa and have to think globally about their customer base and their employer base, or employee base. So it's good to hear that you are thinking globally like that. Right. Yeah. So your councils, do they, is the composition of it internal and external stakeholders? I know there's different ways of... Right now it's internal stakeholders. So those external voices come in through what I would consider our normal sort of feedback channels. So we bring in those external voices as needed. Now, if you were talking to some other folks, they would say, we think that's a gap for us. I I think they're right that it's a gap. Mm -hmm. I think we've got a lot to do internally to make sure we're working on the right things, talking to each other the right way listening to the quieter voices in the room. I want us to get really set at doing great work there and then make sure we're bringing in all the external voices we need. So councils, I know they're also different than affinity groups, network groups. Do you also have those in addition to this council? We do. We have a number of um, employee resource groups. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of ERGs. Um, I have been um, historically kind of the... Uh, sponsors of different uh, ERG groups. Some of them are defined by ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Some of them are defined by orientation. So we have a a bunch of different groups and we're re-looking at what's the right 
what's the right makeup of those groups in terms of how many of them should there be? How many times should we ask for their input on things? Should they be an extension of the group? We're, we're redefining those ERGs right now, and it feels productive to me. Well, that's really interesting because there are some companies that are disbanding them completely as well because they think it's gone further away from the concept of inclusion. Do you have a women's network affinity group, resource group as well? We do. So this is one that I've been hearing a lot of conversation around when you're thinking about a women's resource group, affinity group, or network group, that um, our companies, when they have this group, they're listening to the voices. Are they keeping in mind the composition of it? So I've heard from uh, women who are part of underrepresented groups feel as if uh, the voices in those groups are not um, very uh, diverse, it's very homogenous. So you're hearing a lot from white women who are part of the women's group. And so I just wanted to get your perspective on it. How do you feel about that? Because that is what I'm hearing more and more now. I understand it. I understand when... um when that's a topic of conversation and what I would say it should be a topic of conversation. So I'm going to, I'm going to lean in just a slightly different direction. So one of the groups that we feel most strongly, we've got to have great diverse representation, at least for our customer base is our sales functions. So those people who are closest to our customers. So we have a really vibrant women in sales um, group that I think is, is, tackling some of those issues as well. How do we get all the voices at the table? How do we get someone who is um, in their 20s, maybe of a a non-Caucasian background, and how do we make sure we've given them the tooling and the resources and the mindset so that they can make a contribution? Um, We need more voices, not fewer voices in the mix. And I I think that a lot of companies have in the past thought if they checked the box Mm -hmm. of we have a leader, we have resource groups, we're done. Those were just, those were always just the organizing mechanisms. Just the beginning. You you chose to use to bring the right conversations in. So, So if you set up different org structures, you did that in part because you believed you needed a different route for people to take issues or have mm-hmm. conversations or or communicate with one another. Um, I think definitely some companies have gotten lost in the governance and the structure, mm-hmm. and they forgot the reason they did it was to get a different conversation started and to have a different set of priorities and to eventually invest in things differently. And so I would say we're pretty clear on that at principle is that those things are just a means to an end. They are not the end. Right. So what, what keeps you up at night? If you, if you, when you think about diversity and equity, inclusion and engagement, if, if you had the wand, I know there's probably a hundred things you want to do, right? Then what, if you could put your finger on the thing that you would have the most impact on right now, what would that be? So I think about this a lot. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of, um, counting or quotas or assuming that the law is going to do our best work for us. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, us figuring out in conversations with each other, what 
what the best things to do are for us. Now, so number one, it's going to be tied to what our strategy is. So if one piece of principal strategy is that we want to make sure that we have um, a particular passion of mine for our strategy is helping small business owners, for mm-hmm. example. I'm going to make sure that we understand and actually listen to that small business owner journey. Um, I'm going to actually make sure we have the feedback loops so that when we're not getting it done right, we hear it and we hear it in the right places. So what keeps me up at night is that we lull ourselves into a sense of security, that we understand our customers, we know them, and we're engaged in them the way that we should be. And I would say we are not done with that journey at all. What, what is also a passion for me and what I worry about at night are where, what mindset we're coming at conversations. Um, a mindset of anger and fear, it is, there's actual, there's all the evidence we need if we choose to look at it. Yes. That humans make poor decisions when they're angry and afraid. And so one of the things I feel really responsible for is setting the right tone and being a role model for making decisions uh, from a point of uh, understanding, generosity, kindness. And I know this can sound kind of trite, but we don't do our best work when we are mad at each other. Well, I I think you bring up a good point, and maybe we can expand on it because one of the... negative byproducts of the push towards diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement is, have we angered the middle-aged white man, right? Have we made, I mean, if we're being honest about this, have we, have we pushed the envelope so far that we created a defense mechanism um, that suddenly all white people, all white men think, I'm losing my job because it's diversity, it's equity. We've got to be diverse in the and company. And you know, maybe what's worse. That's, that come, and that creates a defense mechanism yes. and, and it affects the way leaders make decisions. And so I imagine you grapple with that. Yes. And, and uh, maybe we could talk about that a little yes. bit. Yes. Yeah. I, I think what's even worse than them kind of as a group worrying about their jobs is saying, where is my voice? Mm-hmm. So it is never okay to take a voice away. No. It's never okay. I agree 150%. It's always okay to bring a voice to the table. Never take a voice away. So, so if we have some evidence that helps us understand that there is, there's a growing group of people who feel like their voice is not welcome, then inclusion efforts have failed. So how do you balance that with a group of individuals that feel as if they never had a voice to begin with? It's a different... It, this it, is what I look at the a, pendulum I and know. I feel like... So tough. Sometimes I think, am I a sellout? <laughs> and I'm not, but I just feel like when I say that everyone's voices need to be heard, some are saying, well, you're selling out. And I'm not because from a humanity perspective, I don't care what color you are. That's something that is socially constructed. Society, that means you, me, us, we all created that. So I don't want to create that if society created it guess what i'm part of society i'm cutting that out so it's not wrong for me to be able to stand up for individuals who recently started to feel this way and it's not wrong for me to stand up for individuals who for the longest time and still don't feel as if they have a voice so i understand about mindset and fear and trying to create that tone but we grapple with this day in and day out so how do you how do you grapple with that Person. Probably imperfectly. I mean, I, I, <laughs> yeah. honestly, probably it's a journey. Im- imperfectly. Um, right. 
I, I think one of the things I, I know that we do is though we try to understand it it's not so much where we are right now, but kind of what kind of journey did you have to get there? But but factually, those journeys on how you got there, they infuse what ideas you bring to the table. They mm-hmm. infuse how you say it. Yep. They infuse um, how vigorously you oppose or support certain ideas. And so I think we just kind of acknowledge that and then say, we are better with more voices at the table. Here's what I would tell you. If you don't have some sort of training or development, though, yes. about how to have constructive conversations mm-hmm. and how to handle conflict when you got it, because I think a lot of people want to bring different voices to the table, and then all of a sudden they're conflicting and people go, oh, oops, that feels uncomfortable. What do we do now? Yeah. Well, that, that, that has to be part of what we deal with then. So an expectation that we have for leaders is that they will be able to be someone who can help navigate what we'd call critical or crucial conversations. We have an expectation that regardless of your set of personal beliefs, you're going to be able to navigate those conversations with your team. You have to be willing to get uncomfortable. Yeah. But, but that's a leadership expectation, mm-hmm. not a diversity expectation. Right. So you hit upon inclusive leadership skills, and I think that's great. And in a global company, that can be quite challenging, especially if you're trying to go beyond Des Moines and Iowa, if that's what the mindset has been, is globally, it's different across all of your facilities when you're looking at And that means that you, you have to have some ability to you know, understand that the way that a conversation or maybe even a, a discussion slash argument unfolds right in Latin America mm-hmm. might be, the expectations may be very different than in Asia. Yeah. And so, so we have to have enough people who are kind of spanning that local, mm-hmm. um, doing the translations to help us understand locally what makes sense with globally what we should hold people to yeah. in terms of standards yeah. of behavior. So that, that global, local perspective is something we will not give away. So we yeah. can't we can't um, govern or legislate from Des Moines, Iowa, exactly how everything's going to happen on the ground yeah. in the local markets. We've got to take the local perspective, local patterns in, into account. And I would say we're, we're doing that better and better and better. What's on your mind? Can I get to our listener question? Yes. Well, speaking about global... Um, we actually have a question from Marie W., who lives and works in Germany. So, Amy, her question is, how can I speak about privileges that employees have? I imagine I would kill the conversation if I told a white middle-aged man that he got into his position because of hard work, but probably also because he is a member of the majority group. So in which way do you and other leaders on the podcast think it could be possible to talk about privileges? Marie. So that's a hard question, but we're not, but we've got to be in the business of handling hard questions like that. So I, I think just like, think back to some things we talked about right at the beginning, as I was talking about some things that I didn't understand at the time were, um, inherent sort of privileges or advantages Mm -hmm. from, from the way I was raised. I was raised, you know, clear 
clear family structure that was would support me financially. Mm-hmm. I was raised without a bunch of um, financial insecurity necessarily. That gave me an advantage in how I viewed the world and what I, what I was able to do. Now that gave me an advantage regardless of my gender, regardless of my color, but it also meant I went off to grad school and had horribly embarrassing conversations about when we talked about like the worst chore we did as a child. Mm -hmm. And I talked about burning the trash was the worst chore. I was with people from the East Coast and West Coast. (laughs) They could not stop laughing. Like I was the kid who talked about burning the trash. They're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Trash gets picked up at the end. I'm like, no, we went out and burned it. They're like, oh my gosh, Amy burned trash. <laughs> so I was like trash barrel Amy. Yeah. That was like hilarious. So so what I would say is that's just a teeny microcosm of we each bring our own embarrassment. We yep. each bring our own pain. And some of it is way more material than others. Yeah. But if you can't have a conversation that acknowledges inherently how you've had a past or a history that got you to where you are, whether it helped you, whether it hurt you, whether it informed you. So go back and figure out of the people you need for a key decision, where they're coming from. And I think when you do that with good intent, people meet you where you are and you have a great conversation. Well, thank you, Amy, for helping our listener and for others out there, please continue to submit your questions to info at diversitystraightup.com. Awesome. Well, we're nearing the end of our show. Um, and one of the things that uh, we always like to do is, is uh, play a, a game we call thumbball. Uh, diversity thumbball. It's diversity thumbball. It's a softball. So to our listeners, we've got a, a soccer style ball here. And uh, it has a lot of interesting questions around diversity. And so we tend to like to throw this ball. And the rule is wherever the ball... Did you play sports growing up? I did. All right. Yeah. So you catch this. But it might, might not look like it anymore. <laughs> okay. That was a long time so ago. So pretend I'm Patrick Mahone and I'm throwing a ball. Uh, oh, for that. someone who doesn't watch the <laughs> NFL game. So anyway, we'll throw this ball. And then wherever your thumb lands, left or right, you ask the question and then answer the question. So I will start and I will toss to you. Okay. I'm going to shoot a free throw here. All right. Okay. So here's where my thumb landed. How can your community promote acceptance of differences? So I think the community always plays a role in giving you sort of that baseline, here's the experiences of the group. So I think the community, when I think of how we help promote those differences, is we actually let people tell their stories. So when I look at things like storytelling events, When I look at things like um, community places where it's safe to say, I have a question. I I don't understand basics of things like financial literacy. Those things, the community can play a role to give a forum. Mm -hmm. But then I think people, companies, private, public, they then have the responsibility to engage. When the community gives them that forum, to say I've got a question or I've got a different set of experiences, then to me, individuals, companies, nonprofits, for-profits, they have a responsibility to react. That's the two-way street that Sarek and I talk about a lot when there's concern about lack of diversity or lack of 
women in this company or Asians in this company or lack of opportunity to have a voice or I didn't know about this event. And I think it's always a two-way street. Right. I think if the community is offering So I think the community often gives the forum and then no one does anything with it. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what we owe ourselves is yeah. do something with the forums we're creating in the community. All right. Good answer. Yeah. All right. Throw it where <laughs> you like. Toss where you want. So my question is, share one to two examples of prejudice or discrimination based on age. This is when I think about good intentions and our intent versus our impact. So, and I also think cultural implications. If um, you don't go and get a plate of food for someone in our community, in my Indian community, it may sometimes look bad that you're not taking care of your elders. Whereas sometimes someone in another community may be thinking, well, I'm, I'm capable. I can get my own food. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's why this was a little bit harder to kind of think about sometimes is, are you discriminating based on age or is that being courteous? I don't know. What do you think? It's, I know it was my it question. Could go either but, way. It could go either way. I'm going to simmer on that. I don't really That know means that. you didn't have a better answer, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I, I, I do have a, a quick story around that, which is kind of goes back to the intentions. Um, my daughter and I were walking out of a store not too long ago, and there was an um, older gentleman, um, and he, was, he had a walker, and it was kind of icy. It was kind of snowy, and... I knew he was coming up to a curb and I had that moment where I didn't know it's Mm -hmm. exactly what you're talking about. Would it be perceived as, you know, I'm assessing him as feeble if I go over and try to help him. And I just decided I didn't care. I was going to go help him. And so I walked over and said, I just asked, can I help you at all? Would you like help getting down? And he said, I would love that. I didn't know how I was going to do this. So I held the walker. He got down He thanked me. I walked back over, and my daughter said, that makes me almost want to cry, Mom, that you did that. And I said, but I almost didn't do it because I worried that he might be offended by it. So what we ended up talking about the whole ride to the next door was, do you just, with good intentions, help someone anyway? Mm -hmm. Even if it might be perceived as kind of, discriminatory towards their age and we ended up landing on if it's good intent we're going to do it anyway well i think it's right asking with intent as we think about that we think about our workplace and the ability for uh diverse groups to understand each other you know i always tell the story and seneca has heard this a number of times we've got a prominent businessman in cedar rapids where i'm from who's kind of a mentor of mine now Uh, but the conversations we have with this 55 year old white millionaire are much different than we would have had 10 years ago he can call me and he can say, Anthony, I, uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a white guy. I don't get it. Can you tell me ABC? Ten years ago, he's not asking that question because of fear. But I know he's coming at it from a point of care and love. He wants to understand. And so those conversations have to happen more often, not just at the water cooler. I so, couldn't agree mm-hmm. more. So. Awesome. Right, My turn? Ready? Yes. Recount a time when you felt like an outsider. Oh, gosh. How much time do we have? How much time do we have? Um, 
Gosh, I can think of one more. I, I'll think of one recent, and you and I have talked about this. Um, on my own journey uh, as a diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement expert and trying to understand multiple communities, you know, I know intently what it feels like to be a black man. Um, but I had the uh, opportunity a couple months ago to go to uh, a One Iowa LGBTQ event uh, in Coralville. And I have gay friends. Um, I have LGBTQ friends. I don't think anything of it. But that was probably the first moment in my life, all day, I felt like an outsider. I didn't really know what I didn't know. And I, it wasn't because I have something negative against that community. I just had never learned a lot of things. And I spent eight hours, literally I felt like a fish out of water all day, but in a good way, right? But because I've grown up black, I'm in a 97% white state. I'm used to being an outsider. I'm used to going places and being the only one in the room. But that day, that, that day was eight hours of fish out of water learning for me. And it was a very rewarding experience. Well, Amy, we're at the end of our episode here. And uh, we just want to ask you what one, two key piece of advice you would give to our listeners to help them on their journey. Well, I want to start with just saying thanks. Thanks. You're for, welcome. Thanks Thank for, you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having a great conversation. Yeah. And, and, and that leads me to my first advice point. Just have a great conversation. That's what I would say to people. Yeah. We get caught up in structures and governance and laws and intentions and offense. And, and, and I think when you initiate with a sort of just a true heart yeah. to have a conversation, people know that. And it works at home. It works in the community. Yeah. It works at work. So that's one of the things I would say is my piece of advice is, is have a good heart and have a good, good conversation. And the second piece of advice is keep open to being uncomfortable and learning. Yes. One of the, one of the best things I continue to find is when I walk into rooms and I just don't get what we're talking about. There's a different sort of language. There's a different, whether it's a language based in math or a language based on things that are going on in an economic environment in a Latin American country. Um, if you go in seeking to, to actually learn something, yeah. then you're going to be better off. So keep great, being great open advice. to that. Wonderful advice. And um, especially both of them are great. Something that you said about the second one, going to conferences and uh, wanting to learn. What I've started to do recently, the last couple of years, is going to tracks that I just have no idea about. Because it feels intimidating because you have no idea about the language, a concept, the acronyms, yeah. and the different industries. And so I start going to those so that my world perspective just opens up and I'm learning more. So I've I started I, to do right. that. And I do the same. And it's a challenge because a lot of yes. people are like, oh, Amy, you have this certain job. You've made it to this certain level. You don't have much more to learn. I have a ton more to learn. Yep. And the minute I stop doing that, I'm going to get worse at my job. Yes, absolutely. Anything else that we haven't talked about that you wanted to uh, no. talk about today? No, I, I am delighted that the Chiefs won. I'm rubbing it in one last time. <laughs> My 49ers. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I'm delighted that you guys came over to have this conversation today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. We really appreciate the conversation. And that's what it is. It's not an interview. This is a, it's a conversation. That's what it felt like. Yep. Thank you. Good deal. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners, as we wouldn't be here without your support. Help us grow our subscriber base by sharing our show with others. Love this episode of Diversity Straight Up? Then head over to the most popular podcast audio platforms to describe, rate, and review us. And check out our other episodes while you're there. Catch us on our next episode of Diversity Straight Up, which drops monthly. We'd love to hear from you. 
Hit us up and send your questions, comments, and suggestions to info at diversitystraightup.com. CBJ's Diversity Straight Up is brought to you by Collins Aerospace, City of Cedar Rapids, and Alliant Energy. It was produced by Joe Coffee of Coffee Grande Studios. Remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are increasingly global. It's not enough to simply be a leader. Be a global leader by leveraging diversity with equity, inclusion, and engagement. And share your journey. This may empower others to be bold change agents. Be courageous. Be authentic. Be vulnerable. Diversity straight up. Keeping it real.